the reality of what our world will be like in this time between his first and second coming. And one of the things he said is there will be wars and the rumours of wars. Uh, until Jesus returns, man will do awful things to one another. That is the reality. So uh, as we come to God's word now, uh, I'm going to pray for the situation in Ukraine, but I'm also going to pray that we listen to Jesus' words. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it grieves us when we see such an awful situation as is happening in the country of the Ukraine at the moment. Father, we pray for that nation, give them strength in their defence. We pray that you might somehow bring about a change of heart from the Russian leadership. We especially pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in that nation, that you will help them to keep trusting you even through this difficult time. But Father, we also know that this is the reality of this world we live in. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, we pray that you would return and put an end to war and sin and hate and evil uh, and you would come in glory like we have been hearing about over these last few weeks. We pray now though as we turn to this very challenging parable uh, that you will help us to think about how we live now while we wait for Jesus to return and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. One of the best habits I've cultivated over the years, I think, is to always take a book with me when I know I'm going to have to wait. So I always carry a book, especially when I'm going to the doctors. You know when you go to the doctors? Doctors never keep time. So whenever you wait there, you know it's going to be at least half an hour. And so I take a book to read. In theory, the smartphone, I know you say I've got my smartphone and all that sort of thing, and I know I could download books. I just don't like doing it. Uh, someone said to me this morning, you do that. But I think most people when they have a smartphone don't read books. They look at cat videos or Facebook or Instagram and so they waste their time. Uh, but using your time well is something that was actually drummed into me in my uh, professional life before I went to Bible college. Uh, I worked in a job many years ago where my time was charged out to clients at, uh, looking back, quite exorbitant rates given how little I knew. But uh, so I had to actually keep account of how I used every six minutes of my time. So at the end of the week, you'd have to go and and you'd have to make sure all your time, every six minutes was chargeable, was worth someone paying you for. Uh, And that makes you care about how you use your time. Uh, And that's what this passage is about. It's about how we use the time we have. So come with me to Matthew chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, put your hand up. One of the guys at the back will get you one. You want to be following along. As you know, we're in the middle of a section of Matthew's gospel all about the return of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, you are living in this time between my first coming, when he came to die for our sins, to rise again, to offer us salvation, and the time when he will return to bring in his kingdom once and for all. See, to be a Christian is to be someone who says, this life I live in is not the be-all and end-all. I'm waiting for something better. To be a Christian is to be someone who is waiting. That's what we are. We are waiting for Jesus to come back when he will rescue us from the judgment day and welcome us into his new creation. So that means the really important question is, what are you going to do while we wait for Jesus? And that's the question of this parable. Now, if you look at Matthew 25, we didn't actually look at the parable of the 10 virgins last week in verses 1 to 13. Uh, Really, that is just stressing the point we've seen repeatedly over the last few weeks. So it's just stressing the point, do not be caught out by the return of Jesus. Be ready when Jesus comes back. Be found trusting in him. So I'm not going to look at that parable, but if you've been reading it and you've got questions on it, feel free to put them on a feedback slip or email them through uh, and I'd love to answer them for you. 
Today, though, we're looking at just this one parable, and it's what gets called the parable of the talents. So come with me, verse 14. Uh, Jesus has been talking about his return. He's been talking about how after his death and resurrection, he will leave his disciples, but then one day he will come back. But we don't know when it will be. We don't know the date or hour. So now he tells this story, Luke verse 14. He says, For it is just like a man going on a journey. He called his own slaves and turned over his possessions to them. In the ancient world, slavery was just a part of the way the world worked. Uh, and it wasn't uncommon for slaves to actually be very important people uh, and to have great responsibility, to be totally trusted by their masters. It sounds really strange to our worldview, but this story was quite normal for them. But if a master went away, often he would leave his household, his family, everything, all his possessions, with his slave in charge. Often the slave was more trustworthy than the son. Uh, so everything was left. This isn't uncommon, the story Jesus is talking about here. But this master recognises some of my slaves are more gifted than others at managing their affairs. So look at verse 15. It says, to one he gave five talents, to another two and to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then he went on a journey. Now, talent was a very large weight. So that's what a talent was. So probably here it's talking about a weight of silver coins. So it's talking about a large amount of money. It's probably, in telling a story, a bit how we would use the word a million. So it's a bit like when you say he's got a million bucks, you mean he's got a lot of money. You don't mean he's got exactly that much money. So we might say, if we were telling this story, he gave one slave a million dollars, he gave another $400,000, he gave another 200000 The point is, it was a lot of money that he was entrusting to these slaves. And what do they do with the different amounts? Well, look at the five talent guy, look at verse 16. It says, immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work and earned five more. So he used what had been given to him, he invested it in some sort of business, maybe he bought a field, maybe he bought a shop, we don't know. He made money with it, he doubled the investment. Second guy does the same, he uses his two to earn two more. But the third guy is different, look at verse 18. It says, but the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Whenever I read that verse, I think of the kid in the castle who tells his dad he dug a hole and his dad's so proud of him. But uh, this master is not proud of him for digging a hole. Uh, the point is, he doesn't want to risk it. He thinks, I'll just keep the money safe. That's all I'll do. I'll just dig a hole. It's like, I'll put it under my, uh, my, my bed or something. I'll just hide it away. Now, it was a long time that the master was away, we're told. So you, you can assume those first two guys did legitimate things with it. They had to build a business with it, whatever it was. They weren't just sort of putting it on the horses at Randwick or something like that. But then eventually, verse 19, it says, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The master comes and he says, so what have you done? What have you done with all that I gave you? So the first guy comes in with his five talents plus the five he's earned, and the master says, how good is that? Look at verse 21. It says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Because you've been faithful with what I gave you, I'm going to give you so much more. That's the gist of what he's saying here. Because you've been faithful with the amount I have given you, now I'm going to give you much, much more than the 10 talents you already got from me. 
More than that, though, I love that last bit. Look at it with me, because we just sort of gloss over it. He says, share your master's joy. It's like he's actually inviting him to stop being a slave. Come and sit at my table. Come and rejoice with me. Come and be my friend rather than my slave. Come and be my equal. And then it's the same with the two-talent guy. Look at verse 23 there. And it's really important to see this. Look at verse 23 and compare it to verse 21. It's really important to see, even though the other guy made more money, what the master says is exactly the same. It's not about the volume, it's about what he did with what he was given. So he was equally faithful with what he had, so he is equally rewarded by the master. Then we come to the third guy. He goes and digs up his hole, he digs up his one talent, he brings it back, and as he does it, he's already explaining himself. You know how you do that when you know you haven't done the right thing? You know how you walk in and you're already telling the story to explain why you failed? Look at verse 24. It says, Then the man who'd received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. The word there, difficult, I think we would say it, he's a hard man. You sort of what it's saying. He is a hard man. You're someone to be feared. You're someone who you, you don't mess around. You're, you're, you're someone who's not afraid to take what's not yours. But you can't help but feel like this slave has misread his master, given how generously the master treated the other two slaves. He says this about the master, but it doesn't ring true. But it seems like he thought, well, whatever I earn, you're going to take it away. I don't want to be accused of having lost your money, so I'm just going to hide it. So verse 25, he says, I was afraid, I went off and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. And it seems like the slave is hoping that the fact that he just didn't lose his master's money is worth something. So he's hoping that that, the master might just call it even and say, okay, you don't get any reward, but you don't get anything else either. But no, the master had given him a job to do. The master had given him a responsibility, less than the other two, but he still had a responsibility and he failed at that responsibility. And even worse than that, he then blamed his master for his failure. And so the master is livid. Look at verse 26. It says, but his master replied to him, you evil, lazy slave, if you knew that I reap what I haven't sown and gather what I haven't scattered then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And when I returned, I would have received my money back with interest. Like, you know, at this point, I don't think the master is conceding that he is the hard man, the difficult man that the guy said he was. Now he's saying, if that were true, if your excuse were true, the very least you would have done is gone and put my money in the bank and got me 2% interest or something like that. He's saying you would have at least put it in a term deposit or something. And then the master does something incredible and shocking to us, I think. Because that slave, look at what happens. He doesn't just not get a pat on the back like the other two. He doesn't just not get rewarded like the other two. He actually loses everything. The master doesn't just take the one talent off him. He goes and takes his house. He goes and takes his car. He goes and takes whatever else, insert yourself into the story. He loses everything, and more than that, he gives it to the guy who's already got the 10 talents. Look from verse 28. It says, so take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. 
but from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him and throw this good-for-nothing slave into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we've seen a few times in this uh, section of Matthew's Gospel, by the end of the parable, Jesus sort of has enough of talking in parables. and He just sort of clicks out of parable talking into real talking and slips into talking not about the slave in the story anymore, but about the person who the slave is pointing to in the story. He's actually talking about the reality of God's awful judgment for people who waste this time in which we live. And that drives us now to think about the question, what is the point of this parable? I'm sure many of us have started to work it out and we've started to see what a powerful and challenging message this is for us. Because if you are a follower of Jesus, one of the phrases the Bible uses to describe you is a slave of Jesus. Well, the Apostle Paul calls himself and us in many of his letters. So let's think about it. Who are the slaves? Well, the slaves are anyone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is the master who has gone away and we are the slaves who he has left in charge of what he has left behind. So this is talking to every person who says that they follow Jesus, which is me and I hope is you. See, the earlier parables we've looked at over the last few weeks, they focus a lot on making sure you're a Christian. They focus on make sure that you're ready when Jesus comes back. Make sure you are a disciple of Jesus. This one is speaking to you as disciples of Jesus. What will you do, Jesus says, with this life that I've given you? Which leads to the next question then, which is, well, what are our talents? Well, the English language has actually made a decision on this for us because this is where we get the word talent from. So most words in English come either from Shakespeare or from the King James Bible. The word talent didn't exist until they translated the King James Bible. And then they said, well, this is clearly talking about your gifts or your skills. So that's where we've got the word talents from. So the Greek word for a heavy weight of coins has transferred into English as things you're gifted in. Your talents is how we'd put it. Because people read this and say that's what it's talking about. And I think that's part of it. But I think it's too small for what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is talking about everything about who you are. Jesus is talking about everything he has left you with. How will you use the gifts he's given you? How will you use the abilities he's given you? Yes, but also how will you use your time? How will you use your money? Our wealth is a massive thing. How will you use what you own? That's what he's talking about. How will you use everything that makes up who you are? Everything that I have given you. He's talking about how you use everything that is part of who makes you who you are. And that's what I think makes this perhaps the most challenging parable in all of the scriptures for people who are Christians, for people who claim to love Jesus. When Jesus returns, he will ask you, what have you done with your life? Jesus will ask you, what have you done with all those things? And so if I jump to the judge slave, first of all, the scary part, there will be people who claimed to be Christians. There will be people who claimed to be Christians who were connected with our church, 
who Jesus will say, you did nothing with your life. You wasted your life. You hoarded your wealth. You, you filled barns here on earth, to use another parable Jesus tells. You wasted your time on things that don't matter. You didn't even meet with your so-called brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage them. You were too busy for that. You, you, you never supported ministry. You, you gave token amount. You never served. And they will not be judged just because of that. No, these people will, will be judged because that exposes the reality of their hearts and the reality of their attitude to Jesus. It exposes a heart that never truly repented and never truly turned to follow Jesus. A heart that perhaps had a wrong view of Jesus, like that slave had a wrong view of his master. The book of James says, a faith without works is dead. Paul challenges us in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Consider yourself carefully. Do I trust in Jesus? Because if I do, it will show in how I use this life that he has given me. I must admit, I fear for many, many people who call themselves Christians in modern, middle-class, Western churches. I fear that when Christ returns, some churches will look around and say, where is Fred? Or where's Edwina? I've picked two names that are nowhere in our church role. But some churches will look around and say, where is he? I thought he was a Christian. Where is she? She said she was a Christian. And Jesus will say, I never knew them. Or worse, they never knew me. Please do not downplay the serious challenge of this parable. Do not downplay it. But it's not just a challenge. It's also a wonderful encouragement. Let's move to the positive. What does it mean to use our talents well? Well, it means we use whatever God has given us to glorify the name of Jesus. We use everything for his glory. And what is wonderful is that that is according to how we are gifted. You don't need to compare yourself to other people and say, look at what they do. Oh, I could never... No, it's who you are. Using who you are and the gifts and, and the opportunities God has given you for his glory. The more talents we are gifted, the more is expected from us. But the reward is the same for both, which is just wonderful, I think. So some people God gives wonderful gifts to. They preach to millions of people. They see hundreds of thousands of people converted. That is wonderful. Other people can hardly string a word together, but they can pray. Both equally rewarded by Jesus. So some people God gives those wonderful gifts to, they should become missionaries. They should become evangelists. They should become preachers. Others will work in their secular jobs, some doing wonderful things, some doing mundane things, but always being a witness to Christ in the way they work and as they have a chance to speak. But I want to say every person should ask themselves regularly, am I living my life the best way I can to please Jesus, to serve him? Every one of us should be generously and sacrificially supporting gospel work. That's part of using our talents well. But some people earn a lot more money than others. That is a gift from God, not so that they can have better holidays. It's a gift from God so that they can be more generous. 10% is a massive amount for some people to give. It's a stingy amount for others. 
I've been quoting a lot of music lately. I was disappointed none of you knew Johnny Cash last week, so I'm going to try Ben Harper this week. Do people know Ben Harper better? There's a few nods. There you go, a few thumbs up. I don't think Ben Harper's a Christian because a lot of his songs seem to be about smoking marijuana, but uh, uh, a lot of his songs have Christian images in them. Uh, And in one song called Excuse Me, Mister, we've got the words on the screen, he talks about standing before the gates of heaven and he says, because mister, when you get there, they don't ask what you saved. All they want to know, mister, is what you gave. Now, I think perhaps he thinks you earn your way into heaven by how much you give. I think he probably has a theology of works, but it's still a challenge, isn't it? And he's sort of paraphrasing the words of Jesus. When the master returns, he doesn't say, how much money do you have in your bank account? He doesn't say, how many homes do you own? He doesn't say, what did you buy for yourself with your talents? He says, did you use them well? We all have gifts to use to build up the body of Christ. Some of us are just natural evangelists. Some of us are great at sharing the gospel. Others are better at inviting people to a course. Some are great at teaching children. Others are great at just sitting and encouraging one person and reading the Bible with them. Some people have gifts of administration. Others are really good at doing practical things so that we can have a building where we meet to preach the gospel from. You can use any gift for God's glory if you use it to build up his body and serve others. I've got a group of, I did have a group of uh, older men, they'd hate me saying that, in a gospel team a couple of years ago. One of those older men is here. Uh, And uh, we read a book together called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper a couple of years ago. And he talks about the tragedy he sees in America where people take early retirement to buy a caravan or a boat and just wander around, seeing the world, collecting shells, he says. And I couldn't help but think of people today wandering around Australia in their caravans. And he says, do you really want to stand before Jesus and say, here are my seashells? Wouldn't you rather say, here are these children I got to teach the Bible to? Or even, here are these children who got to hear the Bible taught because I helped clean the church so they could come, if that's your gift. Or I helped make afternoon tea for them because we're all gifted differently. We're not all teachers. The question is, how will we use our talents? I just want to make one little thing clear here. Jesus is not saying here, you're saved by what you do. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You are saved by trusting in Jesus who died for your sins. The thief on the cross is the great example of that, isn't he? In his dying breath, he turns and puts his trust in Jesus And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He had no time to do anything to make up for his awful life. But he trusted in Jesus and he was saved. You are not the thief on the cross though. In the parable, the first two slaves are not saved by what they do with their talents. You see that in their attitude to the master. It's only the lazy slave who's fearful of the master. These two seem to love the master. Their good use of their talents is not to earn the master's respect or love, it's to please the master who has given them this responsibility. And here is the thing, if we do things out of guilt, if you walk out of here and say, I've got to work harder for Jesus to accept me, you haven't understood it at all, you don't know Jesus at all, you're a bit like the bad servant who thinks Jesus is a tyrant. Jesus loves you before you loved him. 
Jesus loves us. He died for us while we were sinners. But now, because we know Jesus and because we know his love, what a joy it is to use our lives for his service. Totally unplanned by me, totally by God's providence. Uh, I'm going to be talking next week about our church mission, what we're on about, and in particular about the part of it where we're called to serve together, about how every one of us can use our gifts in our church and in the world for the glory of Jesus, which is wonderful timing following on from this passage. As I say, totally unplanned by me, as with most aspects of my leadership of our church. But here's the thing. As we consider that next week, I want you to think on this this week. I think sometimes when I or Kevin or whoever gets up here and says, hey, would you consider giving up your Friday afternoon to teach scripture uh, at Carlton Public School or to to lead Kids Plus or your Thursday afternoon? Or or would you consider giving up Friday morning to be involved in English for Life? Or or when we ask people to do something as small as help out with the hub or or help fold the weekly snacks or, or whatever it is, I think people think we're asking because we need you to fill a hole. We need you to make it happen. Or when I ask you to consider being more generous in your support of your church or of world mission, again, I think people think I'm asking because we need you to fill a hole. We need you to meet the budget. And there is some truth in that. We need people to serve in order to do these wonderful ministries. And we need people to be generous to do many of the things we do. But it is never the main reason I want you to do it. The main reason is in this passage. The main reason I want you to live your life serving Jesus is because I want you to have used your life and your wealth and your talents as well as you could possibly have used them so that when Jesus returns, you will have that joy of having him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with that small life I gave you. and So now, come and experience everything I have to offer in the kingdom of heaven. Share your master's joy. Wouldn't that be the most wonderful thing in the world? Wouldn't that be the most wonderful thing in the world to have Jesus say to you personally, well done, good and faithful servant. You used your life well. See, whether you have five talents, whether you have two talents, whether you have one talent, don't you want Jesus to say, you used your life well? Don't you want Jesus to say, you use this time as well as you could possibly use it? That is what I want. That is my prayer for every person in our church. And that is what Jesus wants for every person in our church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenging word from Jesus. We thank you that we are saved by grace, a free gift, through faith, because Jesus has died for us while we were still sinners. But now as forgiven sinners, as people who know the love of Jesus, help us to live our lives, to use everything we have for his glory. And we pray that every person here will experience that joy on that last day of hearing the Lord Jesus say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.